Hello, and welcome to the Free Thinking Podcast. Now today we have Amy LeMay, performer, creative leader, activist, BBC Six Music DJ, past mayoress of Camden, and now London's first night czar. Wow. So, from nighttime myth-busting and inequality to the great post-pandemic opportunity for a better world for all, I would happily spend the whole day scheming better cities with Amy. Let's see how well we can squeeze all that juice into just this half-hour serving. Hello, Amy. Thank you very much. Very, very, very kind of you to be with me again. And to, you know, I had such a lovely conversation with you before Christmas and I wanted to sort of dig into some of those bits again, if we could. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Adam. Thanks. Oh, thank you. So, so the first thing, so I, I was interested in, so, you know, thinking about your time, you know, being, being, as a performer, as a DJ, as, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a director, and I find that interest in live and your care for live. And I wondered how that informs your work as a night czar and how that powers up your day-to-day understanding. Mm. Well, you certainly have started with a really interesting question. And it's really perceptive um, and astute of you to notice my love for live. Uh, and... I think it's just something that I've always appreciated ever since I started going to live gigs as a teenager. Um, You know, the first gig I ever went to see was the Ramones. Uh, I was 15 and it was incendiary. I mean, it was just, it was insane. And I'd never seen or experienced anything like it before because I was brought up so strict um and I you know I brought to that um begged begged my mother to take me and my friend Pete to go and see them at a a playing at a a local place and uh, she drove us there and Pete's sister came to pick us up afterwards and we were just not the same people (laughs) after after that forever changed (laughs) And and I just was like, oh, I want more of this rock and roll, baby, you know. And um, and so that I think that experience and the word experience is so important that it's and the spectacle of it always entranced me. Um, and so uh, when I moved to London, uh, you know, when I was uh, just twenty one and had the opportunity to start doing some live performances. Um, you know, and this is never anything I trained in or, or imagined myself doing. Um, and I had written a one-woman show that, that um, you know, was on for two nights at the ICA. And I had practiced it and, you know, you rehearse and, and everything. And, and, you know, I didn't actually realize that it was funny. Because in rehearsal, nobody's laughing at you, you know? And then the audience were laughing and reacting and clapping and sighing and shouting. And I was like, oh, this, is, this is just transformational. And then having the opportunity, you know, to open up my own club night, Ducky, which is, you know, until the pandemic, we've been running for 25 years and putting on thousands and thousands and thousands of live performances over uh, a quarter of a century now is has been the best training ground that anyone could ever ask for you know people say to me Amy aren't you do you get a bit nervous you know having to talk to MPs or you know what is it like when you have to speak with the mayor or you know these things that I guess for other people might be a bit frightening and I say well 
I've spent every single Saturday of my adult life on stage at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern in front of 400 baying drunk homosexuals. I pretty much it's quite a can handle <laughs> just about anything. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I say that and I, I'm laughing, but there is something in it that it does, no matter what it is that you do, that's live when you keep doing it and doing it over and over and over and have to constantly adapt to different situations and different people and it it just enables you to understand human nature <laughs> and how and how how to work with a crowd of people um and that has uh you know it's like going some was there's a a performer the Divine David, David Hoyle, who calls it the Royal Vauxhall Academy of Dramatic Arts. <laughs> <laughs> and there is something in that, just yeah. doing it. I like uh, that thing you were doing also with your body language there, that it's clearly, you know, the conversation, it, you know, it, the, the relationship with the audience, it's back and forth, it gives and takes. There is this ebb and flow about it in your movements there. And I think that's really interesting, isn't it, when one thinks about the city and how one better understands and better cares for one's audience because mm. fundamentally, you know, that you're riffing with them, aren't they? They're always changing. You can't put one thing down and expect it to work forever. You need to be constantly attentive. And I think one thing I'm coming across with a lot of developers we've been speaking to recently is almost that thing that we're wanting people to be more, more the impresario rather than sort of, you know, sitting and letting it be. They've got to be constantly yes. on top of it and caring because the audience is mm. always caring and we need to care just as much back, don't you think? Mm. Yeah, I think one of, one of the things that um, has helped with the longevity of Ducky, because it's very rare for a club night to survive for 25 years, I have to say, um, is that we have always changed, but we've always stayed the same in some ways. So we've always kept very, very close to our true values. We have certain points in the night, things always happen, but those things that do happen within those points are always different. So it's, it's that kind of sameness, but with constant change. So it's giving people a reason to keep coming back as well. So, you know, we have, we have people that have been coming for 25 years. We have people that started coming to us when they were students and now they're just having the retirement parties with us. It's like, you know, it's kind of crazy, but, but that, that also informs the work that I do as nights are because I realize that it's like London as a city. You know, the one thing you can always say is that London will change. London is dynamic. For better or for worse, it will change. And I think that part of my responsibility now as nights are is to ensure that it changes in ways that keep people at the very heart and the center of that, that keeps the Londoners at the heart and the center of that change. Yeah. So Amy, I haven't been, sounds like I've been stalking you, but there was a thing that you were doing on Radio 6 that last, uh, a few Sundays ago, where you were talking about the relationship of music and town planning. And you played uh, So Long Frank Lloyd Wright by Simon and Garfunkel. So I'm really interested in that thought about the relationship between music and a place and how you might better understand a place through its music. And of course, you are Maris of Camden. So that great borough, famous for music, how that might have inspired you there. 
it's because I grew up in a place um, that is very, very closely connected to music history. Uh, so I grew up very close to where um, Bruce Springsteen was born and grew up. And I spent my youth in uh, uh, in Asbury Park. And so this, the importance <laughs> of place and telling stories about place through music and song uh, is part of the culture that I grew up in. So you never really know these things until you're a bit older and you're able to kind of go, oh, oh, the Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, you know, you're able able to pick it apart and, and really understand it. Um, but I think that that has stood me in good stead for being able to connect music and place here in London. I mean, the reason I wanted to be in London, of course, was because of the music and and live arts and, you know, and everything about performance and creativity. Um, and so to be in a place where you know, walking over Waterloo Bridge where there's a song about Waterloo Sunset or, you know, walking around Sloan Square. I mean, being a, a massive Smiths fan, you know, it's like <laughs> everything is a lyric. You know, every street is a lyric. Every place is 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 a phrase in a song. And I just found that so exciting. Um, and so I think it's important that we remember this history, not that it has to be kept in aspic, <laughs> but that it's allowed to live and breathe, you know, in a way that, say, for example, Camden has done it really well, you know, looking after its most important venues, um, ensuring that new ones are allowed to flourish, bringing in things like the, you know, the, the music Walk of Fame, um, you know, bringing in those the murals of Amy Winehouse and making sure that it's kept as fresh and as relevant as it was, you know, back when Madness were just starting out at the Dublin Castle through to some hot new, you know, act that you can see at the in the basement of the Roundhouse, you know. Um, I, I think that's so essential. And, and while you can't necessarily manufacture that, you can draw inspiration from it. And this is one thing that I really wish developers and builders and, you know, those that are looking at master plans would consider that there isn't a natural uh, disjoin, disconnect between live music venues and residential or retail. And in fact, activating these spaces with things that keep people coming back, that, 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 that really put meaning and purpose into a place can be such an important part of placemaking and place shaping. Yeah. Oh, I so agree with that. I think that, that, that richness that you're speaking of, you know, as we bounce between different uses and activities, and I think particularly mm. imagining that as that changes through the day and how, you know, whether it's co-working at this time or kind of might be yoga studio at that time and then it becomes a live venue here. And I think that's what we want from our cities, you know, and I think particularly, you know, I was going to ask you this later, but maybe I'll ask you this now, because I think for the you know, post-pandemic city where we're going to be ever more staggering our day, we're going to be making use of different times and different places in different ways, I can see that is going to be something ever more critical. We're going to be wanting places that have that kind of richness rather than just going, okay, now residential turn off, 
you know, office area turn on or, you know, in terms of high street is only for these kind of functions and closing at six o'clock. I think we're talking about something much richer here, aren't we? I think you've really, really hit on something there. And look, the high street was going under massive amounts of change even before um, the pandemic. And I think what the pandemic has done is accelerated the change of our high streets. Uh, what would have taken <laughs> maybe eight to 10 years is happening in about 18 months to two years. And it's very quick. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges, but there are also opportunities. And, you know, it's a difficult word to say opportunity when around us people are dying and people are ill. Um, but there's so much that's going on in our city that we really must not ignore um, while we're also focusing on the health and well-being of, of people. Um, I'm particularly concerned about um, the white paper, um, the, the sort of, um, you know, the planning and housing white paper. And, you know, I've seen firsthand how the planning system at its best can really support communities. So I'll give you an example of a case that I've been working on. Uh, it's the Joiner's Arms in East London, an LGBTQ plus pub uh, that was hugely popular and was then bought uh, and shut summarily um, by a developer. Now that developer wanted to build uh, flats um, and they then decided they were going to change tack and build a hotel. Now, no meanwhile use was sort of offered for this. Uh, we had lost 61% of our LGBTQ plus venues in London. So we were on a, like quite a severe downward trajectory. And we know that these are the kinds of places, LGBTQ plus venues, grassroots live music venues, independent cinemas, independent retail that kind of make London, London. And if you lose them, you lose the spirit of our city. So the mayor and I really understood how important it was to, to preserve this space. Um, and if it couldn't be preserved, then how could we ensure that the developers put something back into the community? Um, and that the importance of evidence in that was really important we have now been able to secure uh, not just Section 106 uh, reprovision of an LGBTQ plus space in the final development, but we've also been able to secure a five-year meanwhile use space at Peppercorn Rent for the Friends of the Joiners Arms, the community group that we're working to help save the venue. So it means that that community isn't displaced it's part of the fabric of the neighborhood and when that neighborhood does change because it's london and these things do change and we have to accept that but that the people that make the city are not being not sacrificed on the altar of you know mass development um oh, i love that is a great story but also i think there's two things for me there firstly there's the meanwhile piece which is saying that 
you know, as you say, the city is always meanwhile, it is always in flux, mm-hmm. but we need to embrace that rather than meanwhile being a series of sort of fancy cordings that maybe pretend they're developed by local children yeah. and then nothing happens until it's finished. Or maybe there's a little note there saying, don't worry, we'll be done in three years. That's the critical <laughs> opportunity. And as we all know, you know, there's that area in San Francisco called Hayes Valley, which mm-hmm. it was going to have the flyover coming down over that area just off Market and Van Ness. And then it didn't happen. And then the residents took it over. It became an area for allotments and an area for pop-up kind of little shops and markets and stalls and a, and a nursery. And all of a sudden, all the things that they were missing that were there to complete their neighbourhood happened in this meanwhile way. And then they managed to com- convince the mayor's office that it was far more important than the flyover would have ever been. And yeah. That's fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, And I think that this is just going back to the the opportunities that are ahead. I think that our high streets are going to show an enormous amount of opportunity for us. We know our behavior has changed since um, the pandemic. People are valuing outdoor space more. Uh, They're valuing green space more. They don't want to be in crowded places. Um, And not only is it they don't want it, it's actually not good for us at this moment in time. And so how can we future-proof our city? I would say stretching it out is a really interesting way of looking at it. So I know my role as Knights are is to promote London as a 24-hour city. Um, Some people think that means you know, putting a nightclub on every corner. Actually, what I'm interested in is a much more holistic, integrated, uh, creative way of approaching our city in a 24-hour, looking at the 24-hour clock. And so if we stretch those hours out, would it mean that our high streets could be more adapted, more adaptable and adapted for the lifestyles that people are living now? Um, Does it mean that you know, there won't be a such thing as a rush hour, for example, if everyone staggers their time or every, not everybody's working away from home every single day. Um, I love this idea that, you know, you said about places changing and adapting even within that 24-hour clock. So something that might start as a, a crush in the morning and a lunch club in the afternoon could wind up being something totally different in the evening, maybe a uh, you know, pop-up art center. Um, this is something that we've done a lot of research on at City Hall and this, we call it nesting, um, or taking an existing space, say a hotel or a pub, and then putting something else in it for a period of time. We've seen this during the pandemic. Pubs have become grocery stores <laughs> in some places. It's brilliant to see. And then that's certainly in an urban environment, but in rural environments, we've seen during the pandemic how, how pubs have become, uh, you know, um, post offices or you might have a pub with a post office and then a little shop and a, a you know, genuinely and public house, a place of public resource like they, yes. they once were. Yes, absolutely. And and so I think that we've got some some great opportunities ahead of us to really rethink about rebuilding our high streets in a way that is fit for the future. Yeah, and I love that. And I think whether it's kind of, you know, planners or or regulators or whether it's kind of licenses or whether it's developers, Mm -hmm. the opportunity there and also to think about some experimenting and prototyping things and doing it small and then growing incrementally. Mm. It's a bit like you're talking about your 
your live shows. You know, it's like, what, yeah. what did that make people laugh? Did it make them think? Let's do a bit more with the next show. Yeah. It's the same yeah. kind of language. An, yeah, an iterative process. And I, I'm also a big fan of piloting things. So one of the most exciting projects we did that finished just before the pandemic hit was um, our nighttime enterprise zones pilot scheme, which was, uh, so we had a, a, a small grant that we uh, tendered out for, to local authorities in London to apply for this, to test how we might be able to activate the high street at night sort of post 6 p.m. in new and innovative ways and get people on the out and about that wouldn't necessarily feel safe or welcome for whatever reason. So it's digging into why they don't, what the barriers are and how we can remove those barriers. Uh, so Waltham Forest is the council that, that won that. And um, we, the findings are just fascinating. We were able, in the space of just a few months, to increase footfall post 6 p.m. by 21%. And that is, that is by activating the high street in lots of different ways, from having mass ukulele playing <laughs> to night markets to, uh, you know, craft centers to you know, running promotions with various bars and restaurants and cafes. Um, you know, and there was a really great uh, example of this nesting, you know, how one thing can turn into another that I really love, was so innovative. So it was a pie and mash shop, a traditional pie and mash shop with the most beautiful original Victorian tiling interior um, that had been run by this family for, yeah, for centuries probably. And so, but, you know, like all pie and mash shops most of them close around about 4 p.m and a local entrepreneur um, restaurateur also worked in in the theater industry said you know, this place is so beautiful and I've always wanted to run my own restaurant but you know I don't I don't have the money for premises and this that and the other anyway he came to an agreement with the family and he took over three nights a week and ran a uh, uh, tapas and cocktail operation and so he paid them a sort of rental fee or you know uh and made sure he had his insurance and everything was covered etc etc so all the you know the rules and regulations and 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 everything were, were in place but that he just took that over three nights a week it's been so popular and i think that this is this is what we should be looking at what what clothes is it for and why? And what can we turn it into? And can we keep it open later? And who might we welcome? You know, this is a big part of busting those myths around the nighttime as well and getting people to change their minds about what actually happens after dark. And I think that's a massive thing for you, isn't it? Because the great thing about, I mean, the pilots are a wonderful way to prove it, but actually also what you've done is a huge amount of research around myth busting that lots of people are thinking it's dangerous because of this or it's critical the you know because mm -hmm. of the booze. And I think you've been finding that actually a lot of these things are not, not true at all. And I wonder if you could tell me some of those myths that we should bust right here. 
Yeah, that's, um, thanks for bringing that up because it is an important part of my job. And, uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier with the Joiner's Arms case, just how important evidence is in my role. Um, because if we don't have the evidence, then it just becomes, a, well, I feel this or I think this and I think something different. And you don't have anything to to change to help change people's minds or to help them open up their thinking um it just becomes well that's my opinion and that's yours and we'll just have to leave it at that so we uh, we commissioned the gla intelligence unit to undertake what has turned out to be the uh, largest and most comprehensive report on any city at night in the world and it's called the london at night report um and in it, I mean, it's well over 200 pages, but the um, we've condensed kind of the most eye-opening facts and figures into just one slide that I often show at the, the talks that, that I do. And, you know, sometimes people just are like, well, that's, that's just not true. So one of them is, for example, only 4.5% of all crime at night is alcohol-related. Okay, that's incredibly minute number. 4.5% of all crime at night being alcohol-related. Now, if you read certain newspapers, you'd think that everybody was falling over drunk in the streets and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, this is ONS data on top of uh, TFL data, on top of Metropolitan Police data, on top of NHS data, on top of, you know, it is the most copper-bottom research project and so that gives us the ability to you know to just help people think differently I mean and my eyes were opened so I I I can't pretend that oh yeah I knew it all because (laughs) quite frankly uh we had no idea how many people were working at night in London for example um, we now know that there were that there are 1.3 million people in London regularly working at night, and that is a third of our workforce. Wow, and there's and so little we, on for them, I would imagine. Yes, very little. We you know we ignore them at our peril, and there's often you know this argument that comes up: oh, well, working at night is bad for you. I said, no, working at night isn't bad for you. What is bad for you is working at night when there are gross inequalities for those that work at night. If we, It's an equality issue, essentially, for me, because I want people that work at night to have exactly the same access to health care, to, you know, to, to their union rep, to their manager, to their you know, HR department to hot, fresh food. I mean, something just as basic as that is quite difficult sometimes. So then all of a sudden that opens up other, you know, other things you look at. We know 65% of Londoners are active at night. That's a huge number of people and they're not down the pub. Some of them are, but most of them are either working or studying, visiting family, uh, going out with friends, playing sport, you're actually more likely to be admitted to A&E at night for a sports injury than you are for an alcohol-related injury. Well, that's a big fact, isn't it? I wouldn't have ever <laughs> no. expected that. <laughs> no, 
They don't. And they say, well, you're, you're lying. I was like, and then I have to go back to this is NHS data on top of ONS data on top, you know, and I'm like, it might be an inconvenient truth for you, but this is, this is the truth. And I like to live in a fake news free zone. And so it's important that we look at the facts because this gives us very valuable insight into how Londoners live, what Londoners value about their city. They value their nighttime in the city. And how can we make it better? I mean, one thing that has always surprised me uh, is that there is no integrated pan-London lighting strategy for our city. Even individual boroughs do not have lighting strategies. The city of London does. Now I realize, you know, this is because of all different things. I'm not pointing a finger and, and blaming <laughs> local authorities. I'm just saying, what if, dot, 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 what if we were able to look at lighting in our city that's not just about putting a big spotlight on it, but rather thinking about our environment, how the built environment uh, dovetails with the nighttime, you know, how a lighting strategy can influence that, um, how placemaking can transform the way we experience our cities at night. And it's a far more sophisticated idea of placemaking, I find, that actually, you know, what you're talking about, and I think I mentioned this before, that I, I heard this lovely reference the other day that was saying diversity is being invited to the party, but inclusivity is having an opportunity to add to the playlist. And I think fundamentally that so much of what you're talking about here is that you know, you're wanting people to take part, to participate, to add to this thing. And actually things, you know, to be able to stretch the day and to think about all those other things that could happen throughout mm. that time. It's almost like that needs to be a challenge to developers and to planners mm. to rather than thinking about the physicality and the red line and what's going to happen, you know, you're going to build in plan. It's saying, what about the time? Tell me about the storyboard. I'm interested in the programme. Get into all those 24 yes. hours and tell me what you're bringing to the designing with time question rather than the designing within your plan. And I, I don't wonder what you thought about that thought of designing more with time in the city. Yeah, I think that is fascinating. And I think it's something that's really overlooked because most things are just by default thought about in the daytime. So if you, you have planners or developers that are listening to this podcast, if you pick up the latest, I don't know, master plan that you're looking at or you're working on, how many of your images show that area in the dark? You very rarely see it, very, very rarely. But actually, it's more important than ever that we that we show what places and spaces are going to look like at night. If we're going to be stretching our hours, you know, you're residents or the people that might be coming to you know a shop or dine out or you know be on your in your development whatever it might be they'll want to know that it's safe they'll want to know that it's well lit they'll want to know how to get in and out they'll want to know how close it is to a tube station you know i'd really encourage everybody to do night walks as part of their uh consultation process and to really bake it in from the beginning. This is something that the mayor is really dedicated to. I mean, he, he completely gets it. And although, you know, obviously with all of the difficulties that we've been facing as a city this year, you know, he, he's not losing that focus that in order for London to bounce back, 
in order for London to remain a leader in the global stage of you know, investment, property, culture. We need innovative ideas. We need to stay ahead of the game. We need to be resilient and fit for the future. And I think that looking at 24-hour cities, look, this is not going away. You know, people might think, oh, but nights are, you know, surely this isn't, you know, who else has a nights are? Actually, almost every major city in the world now has a nights are or a nightmare or a nighttime advisor. And it's a real mark of cultural status to have one. So I have uh, colleagues in Berlin, New York, uh, Tokyo, they're thinking of uh, putting one in, um, uh, Sydney, uh, Bogota, uh, Helsinki, you know, this is, so they're smaller cities, they're bigger cities. Just this week, Bristol has announced that they're going to be appointing a night czar. Uh, they see the nighttime as a really important part of them bouncing back after the pandemic. So, you know, I think you ignore it at your peril. <laughs> uh, oh, Amy, it's, it's such a delight to you. I think that is exactly it. And I, I think this thought of, you know, almost the, the night walks, the night drawings, thinking about the staggered program, the stretching of the day, you know, all of this will make for... And it's almost like, you know, your body language there was almost like Maslow's hierarchy of, 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 of sort of cities in that here we're thinking about you know it's, it's it's calm it's safe and then it's friendly but then it could be a little bit expressive a little bit memorable mm. and it can start to inspire belonging and i think that's where we're going you know these things about say this should be the hygiene factor and then we should be encouraging everybody to go that much further shouldn't we yeah yeah i think you know we're we're so lucky in the uk and particularly in london for having you know, so much knowledge and creativity here. And yeah, I, I'm more excited than ever for London. I really am, even despite all of the challenges that we have, because we know as a city that we've bounced back stronger, bigger and better than before. I've just been reading a book about the Great Fire of London, <laughs> just to kind of remind myself. Yeah, it's not that as bad actually, as 1666, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Some pretty bad things happened in the city and we managed to build back. So Well, Amy, thank you so much. And it's such a delight to have you, you know, kind of leading this charge. And I really value your time here. And I look forward to seeing hearing where you go next. So thank you very oh, much. Thank what you, you do and next, my friend. Yeah. yeah. I should say that, you know, if any if anyone does want to reach out or you know want want to learn more um then we do have a, a page on the mayor's website that's dedicated to the work that i do the work of the culture at risk office and and everything there's a lot of resources there um, and the report so is there is it too the, one the report is there so maybe i'll share that with you adam if you don't mind and um yeah we can point people to it <laughs> thank you so much well amy thank you so much what a pleasure Thanks. well done bye thank you. Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Amy. Now, next week, we have another great hero of mine, Ross Bailey, founder of Appear Here, dubbed the Airbnb of retail. 
His mission is to create a world where anyone with an idea can find a space to make it happen. And so far, he has helped over 200,000 brands in London, Paris, and now New York do exactly that. Ross talks about how we will build back the delight-inducing, memory-making theatre of the high street and how this is not about property, this is about entertainment and experience. I can't wait to get into that. So do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us comments so we can get better and better. Thank you and see you soon.